Let me pray. Father, as we've just been singing and just in the morning that you've given us new mercies to walk in, we thank you for your grace to us in your Son. Father, for this gift of righteousness, which is not just an idea but a declaration and a reality for us in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for this wonderful letter of Paul's that we've spent some years now slowly going through, bit by bit. And we pray as we finish off this week, uh, this morning, uh, that this would not be the end of the wonder and power of the gospel in our lives, as Paul has proclaimed it in Romans, but it would go on um, strengthening us and transforming us, renewing us more and more into the image of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. So if you haven't already, please turn to Romans 16. We'll read through it uh, as we go this morning. And some people might wonder, you get to these chapters and you think, well, hang on, most of it's just a whole list of names. We can sort of skip that. They're too hard to pronounce and uh, not much important stuff there from Paul. Um, But actually, as we come to this final chapter, and there are lots of personal greetings, as he does at the end of many of his letters to the churches. It was quite customary to do so. He sends messages of greetings uh, himself to those in Rome that he knows. And then uh, after a little bit of teaching in verses 17 to 20, his final instructions, um, he actually sends greetings uh, from those who are with him, most likely in Corinth, as he writes this, uh, to those in Rome. So there's connection there between the church in Corinth and the church in Rome, not just Paul himself, uh, before finishing with the doxology, praising God. But in the midst of all these greetings, uh, and not just the bits in between, but actually in the greetings themselves, there's some amazing insights and deep, profound theology taking place as well. Paul can't help himself, doesn't matter what he's writing, he's going to be talking about God and the goodness of God in the people of God. Uh, Truth be told, we don't know much about most of the people that Paul lists here, Uh, but we do know a bit about some of them. But just the, the sheer size of the list, to a church that he didn't establish, a church he hasn't visited, a city he hasn't been to, It's a reminder that Paul is a real man writing to real people and it highlights the scope of his influence across the world at this time, in the ancient days. Uh, Paul's influence and his travel, he hasn't been to Rome, but obviously other people have. So whilst they might not have had Skype and Facebook and emails, uh, travel, transport and communication was probably far more spread than we might originally think. It wasn't just kept to small locations, especially when it came to the Gospel. It was spread to the nations as Jesus said it would be and commanded them to take it. So let me read uh, just the first 16 verses, this list of greetings and a precious window really into the life of the early church. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Tentria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you for she has been a patron of many, and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epantrius, 
who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachus. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphene and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobas, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. And I hope the Lord will forgive me for the mispronunciations of any of them. Whole bundle of greetings. Um, it struck me there, and I realise it's underlined there too. This is the one time I see Paul actually thanking a particular person. Um, in verse 3, Priscilla, Aprissa, or who is Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, he gives thanks to them. Most often Paul gives thanks to God for people or for their faith, their hope and their love. It's one of the rare occasions Paul actually mentions thanks to the person. Uh, but one of the, well, there's a number of precious windows uh, that we have here in these greetings and I do just want to acknowledge um, as I have in the past, Tim Keller and John Stott have been using their commentaries and probably leaning on them more than ever in this final chapter just for some of the, the headings and, uh, and the content of what I'll be saying this morning. Um, but the, one of the precious windows we get in this list uh, is uh, the women in ministry in the early church. Uh, Phoebe, for example, she's the first on Paul's list um, and even just the mention he has of her gives us an insight in the significant role she had in the church and in Paul's own life. Um, and Paul's strong approval and recommendation of these women should encourage us and maybe strike us, particularly in days and some places where it's not that way. Uh, sadly, it's been a, a, an issue of great contention in the churches. Um, and often Paul, in some places, is considered as being quite a strong misogynist, having no regard for women at all. Um, because of his teaching elsewhere concerning leadership and distinct roles and functions of men and women, both in the home and in the church, but whilst Paul does hold to those teachings, he teaches those distinct roles, upholding what we call a, a complementarian approach to life and ministry in keeping with God's creational order, I cannot see at all that Paul dislikes or disapproves or denigrates women in his teaching or his life. He commends them. Some of them he commends highly, as we see here. And despite some of his teaching that seems to restrict the place of women in the church in his own day, he was opening far more doors to women than he was closing them against the culture of the day. He was actually raising women up and providing opportunities for them for ministry in the church rather than shutting them out. He was opening more doors than closing them um, and that was going against the culture of the day. He was encouraging their active involvement in church life. Phoebe is a prime example of that. 
Paul commends her to the church. She's probably top of the list, the first on this list of greetings, uh, because she's probably the one that brought Paul's letter to the church in Rome. She's the one travelling with the letter. She's the courier. But he commends her both as his sister in Christ and theirs, our sister. Welcome her. And she's a servant. She seems to be a woman of great importance and influence in the church, the church at Chentria, uh, which is right next to Corinth. She was probably a deaconess, whether she held that title or that particular office, we don't know, but the word used here for servant is diakonon, the same word for deacon, one who serves. And she's been a great help, or the ESV's got a patron. She's a benefactress, is the literal word. She's obviously provided support, financial support for Paul and for the church. So she was most likely a woman of business, of independent means, having some wealth and skills which she used to support the church and help many, including Paul. She may even be travelling to Rome on other business. And because she was going there, so, well, I'll take your letter, Paul. Or Paul said, hey, could you take this as you go? She's a prime candidate to be courier for the, for the letter. Phoebe was a prominent, well-regarded woman, recognised and commended by Paul for her work in her local church, and therefore she was to be welcomed in the Lord by the church in Rome. Not only welcomed, but welcomed in a way worthy of the saints and helped in whatever way she might need from them. Another woman mentioned together with her husband is Prisca or Priscilla and Aquila in verse 3. Um, but as it is elsewhere as well in Acts and Timothy, Prisca is named ahead of her husband. That would not normally take place either. So she actually has a high place in Paul's regard and is most likely a, um, the host of a church where she is and a key leader and uh, she's been very faithful to Paul, hasn't she? Together with her husband Aquila. They risked their necks for his life. They put their life on the line for Paul. And without going into the whole argument of men and women in ministry, it's well beyond our scope and our time today, um, I don't think these greetings, sometimes these greetings and commendations are used to um, deny or contradict what Paul says elsewhere in Ephesians and Corinth and Corinthians and elsewhere about his teaching with men and women in marriage and ministry. I don't think we should be using this to contradict that. I think this is a supplement together with what Paul teaches elsewhere, not only acknowledging but approving the strong and vital role of women in the life of the church. Not only in menial tasks, I do think they do better coffee than men, although, biblically speaking, men should be doing the coffee. You know that, don't you? <laughs> Hebrews is in the Bible. It's in the Bible, the men should be doing the coffee. Sorry, that's a bad joke. I've used it too many times. Um, but even if he does say, no, there's a limit, women are not to be an overall leadership within the church. Paul knows himself that he and the church would be lost if not for the ministry of some of these women. They've risked their lives for him. Some have been like a mother to him, Rufus's mother, mentioned in verse 13. Seven out of ten of the women listed here are listed and described in terms of their ministry. Not just Paul knows them, they are actively involved in serving the church and serving Paul, serving Christ. And he commends them for it. And when we rightly consider this as a supplement to what Paul teaches elsewhere then, I also think these passages should help guard us 
against the perceived and sadly at times very real abuse and mistreatment of women in the church. The fact that Paul raises them up and commends them should just squash any idea of us putting women down and squashing them underfoot. Sadly, that has taken place too many times. And where it has, we should confess it, repent of it, and if other actions are required, if it's actually become abusive, then we need to accept that other, those other consequences as well. Enough on that. Paul commends, not just lists, but commends many of these people here, men and women. As a pastor, often I'm asked to give references for people, whether it's for a job at a Christian school or any other job. Often one I get is, uh, would you mind being a rental referee for me? Young people needing to rent a house. And it's interesting, I, I hear, and it just anecdotally, I think having a pastor give a reference for a rental seems to carry a fair bit of weight. Obviously, people who want their places, um, want other people living in their houses, a pastor's reference seems to have a little bit, oh, okay, these people are probably going to be okay if they're, they're going to look after my house and I'll do the right. Whether that's true or not. But Paul here is commending people to the church in Rome. And I wonder, if you think for a moment, people in your own church, who would you commend to others? What would you say about them if they were travelling elsewhere, shifting interstate, going somewhere else? How would you commend them to another church? Not just that you'll, they'll look after your house. <laughs> well, how would you commend them in the faith and ministry? That's what Paul's doing here. He hasn't just sat down and gone through his contact list and listed people. He's thought about each person prayerfully, I would say. Oh, this person has done this, remember that, and gives thanks for them commends them for their work. There's personal relationship there. One's been like a mother to him. My fellow kinsmen, others as well. Others have been sent out. Others he knows were believers before he was. It's good for us to think about how we would commend others to one another in Christ. And so as well as revealing much about the active role of women in the early church, and the, the diversity there, that's actually what my next point is, is there's great diversity here amongst men and women as well as in a number of other areas. There's diversity in race. Just from their names we can see that. There are both Jewish and Gentile Christians here. Priscilla and Aquila, for example, in verse 3. And then there's others of Paul's relatives or his kinsmen, probably not his blood relatives in that sense, but they're Jews. You could probably trace them back all to being blood relatives, couldn't you? Uh, but there's a number of Jewish names. And then there's others such as Andronicus and Stachus, Apelles and Aristobulus, who are clearly Greek and Roman, Gentile Christians. But all of them, brothers and sisters in Christ, which should be no surprise to us, should it? But it highlights the great unity within the church amongst the great diversity within the church. Not only in race, but there's diversity in class. Some listed here are quite probably of royal or high rank. Aristobulus in verse 10 and Narcissus in verse 11. Both are said to have been the head of a household or a state. Uh, Aristobulus is actually the grandson of Herod the Great, friend of the Emperor Claudius. So there's some pretty high connections there. What did it say? Just memory back in chapter 1, how the word has come to Rome... I'm not going to find it. Uh, 
just says how it's gone into the centre of Rome and into the, the very household of Rome. You have like examples of that here. I won't try to find that now. Um, and as we've seen, already seen, there's great diversity in gender. One writer, Craig Keener, comments how Paul does greet twice as many men as he does women here, so two-thirds men, one-third women, but in that mix he commends twice as many women as he does men, as in he's writing more about twice as many women as he does about men when he doesn't just list them. So there's great diversity within the church, and so there should be. Christ has brought us all together, hasn't he? No longer male, female, Gentile, Jew, slave, barbarian, free. We're all one in Christ Jesus. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. But within that unity, great diversity amongst us. One thing to note, a couple of people here, Andronicus and Junius in verse 7. They were well known to the apostles and they were in Christ before me. Sorry, not that. No, sorry, there's a little footnote here. They were messengers. They themselves could be apostles. Paul could be calling them as apostles. They're either well known to the apostles or could be apostles. But they're not among the 12 apostles, are they? Do you know what the word apostle means? It means one who's sent. So we do have the capital A, specific apostles, who were taught by Jesus, witnessed Jesus' life, death and resurrection and were sent by Jesus to go out to the world. And that included Paul, remember? He was an apostle with a special case. Last one called. Um, And then there are little A apostles, like anyone who's been sent out, which is all of us really. And then we have particular missionaries and those with a particular calling. Lowercase A apostles. We're all sent ones. Go into the world proclaiming Christ. Um, But I wonder if we should actually not use the word apostle because sadly in some circles um, it has been used as a a word of power. I'm sent by God. I am an apostle. I'm part of the succession, the apostolic succession, and therefore I have special author. That's not how it is today. There is the specific capital A apostles in scripture. There aren't any capital A apostles now. We're all little a apostles in the priesthood of all believers. Does that make sense? And then we're also given some insight into the early church structure. Most likely they all met in little groups, home groups. Probably didn't have big auditoriums like this one to meet in. They met in houses. Verse 5, the church that meets at Prissa and Aquila's house, greet them. Uh, Some people he greets together with all the saints with them, probably referring to another house church. There wouldn't have been just one little church in Rome, probably quite a number. The church in Rome is all those house churches put together. Now, that was the norm for the early church. We see that in Corinthians and Colossians and elsewhere, Philemon. Um, Christians met in family-sized groups or a little bit bigger. But within those small groups was the full function and gifts of the Spirit and the church in action. The hearing and teaching of the Word, the Word ministry, worshipping together, fellowship, breaking bread, deeds of service, acts of love and kindness evangelism, all taking place out of what we would now call small groups, connect groups, life groups, whatever it is. That's closer to what the early church was than what we do today as a large group. But then, verse 17, there's a big warning, isn't there? 
had a phone call from my mum yesterday morning. She said, I just want to ask you something. I've got an email and it's from this address and it says dot, 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 all these letters and then my address at the bottom of it. And I said, don't touch it. <laughs> had an attachment with it, but no names. Had, interesting, it's got her address as well as an email address. Someone's contact list has floated around. I said, don't touch it. It's not from anyone she knew, not from an organisation. It's a scam. And if you've got a mobile phone, you probably get one a week, if not more, um, a phone call or a call or message um, or an email saying from someone who you don't know, trying to get you to open something up so then they can get into your system. Uh, this is a scam alert from Paul. Uh, not a techno- technological one, but a theological one. He's exhausted his greetings for the time being. And in verse 17, he warns his brothers and sisters, urging them, to be careful about divisions and obstacles, or rather, of those who will cause division and create obstacles, those who are not serving the Lord Jesus Christ, but serving their own appetites. Let me read. Verse 17, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by their smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good, and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. It would seem from Paul's words here that these people are not yet active in the Roman church. They're not yet teaching uh, anything false. They're not yet causing division. But Paul is saying, watch out, because they will come. Uh, In many places where the gospel is fresh and there's great excitement um, and it's making inroads into a culture, sadly, there are others who hear of that and see that and come in and try to take advantage of it. Here in some places, Africa is one of them, where the, um, some churches are growing very quickly, but the prosperity gospel is rife. And you have one very entrepreneurial person who comes and plants a church and they get to a certain size and he says, right, you're good enough, I'm going to point you as pastor there, but I'm still going to be bishop and then I'll go and start another one. And, he start, and he's getting a collection from all of these different churches. It's like a pyramid scheme of churches. And it's just for his own appetites what's happening here and I'm sure it's happening in the western world as well we see sometimes it gets found out doesn't it Um, and the media have a field day with it very sadly it is a dangerous possibility not only in Paul's day but in ours and so Paul warns us and warns the Roman believers keep an eye out watch out for them, avoid them keep away from them, separate yourselves and grow in discernment so that you'll be able to know the difference between what's good and what's evil, what's true and what's not. How do they avoid such folk? How do they know who to keep away from? Because we're meant to be welcoming everyone, aren't we? But not everyone should be called to be a teacher in the church. How do we recognise those who cause division and create obstacles? Well, Paul gives us at least a couple of ways, two or three ways. First of all, they teach and they do what is contrary to the teaching or doctrine that you've been taught. You've heard the message of the gospel. You've been taught the truth of Christ. 
If someone comes and brings you something new, chances are, like the old saying goes, if it's just because it's new doesn't mean it's true. And when it comes to the gospel, if it's new, it's probably not true. Because the gospel's built on the prophets. Tradition of the church, isn't it? The prophets, the apostles, on Christ. We have the word of God. Be discerning. People may be eloquent and flattering. That's the other thing he says to watch out for. Watch out for their smooth talk and their flattery. Don't take mere appearances and niceties as proof of character and content. They may sound really good. They may even look really good. Maybe really attractive. But what should be our measure? What's the standard we should measure them against? The gospel. The truth of Christ. Don't let mere appearances, nice words, be the proof of character for us or proof of their content. The gospel is to be our standard. Jesus Christ, our straight line, our plumb bob, against which any and every teaching must be discerned. Without that standard, without that discernment, we will be deceived. And sadly, there's many a church in Paul's day and in ours who sadly have not been well taught, where the sheep have not been well fed, and so in one sense, not by any fault of their own, they've been deceived. It's why good, solid, biblical gospel teaching is so important. The whole counsel of God. Whether it's the prosperity gospel, or extreme forms of Pentecostalism, or great religious piety, striving for personal righteousness apart from Christ, there's an attraction about the teaching and the way that these teachers teach and um, convey, present themselves in their speech, if not in their appearance. Paul says, watch out for them. It's a strong warning. Steer clear of them. Because what they're aiming to do is not serve you, nor serve Christ, but serving their own appetites. They're in it for themselves. And that's one of the other ways to discern. Are they building you up? Or are they puffing themselves up? Are they in it for themselves? Or are they giving themselves to Christ? Are they a shepherd who loves the sheep? Or a self-proclaimed hired worker who runs at the whiff of trouble and just wants to feed off the fat themselves? And do they, contrary to what Paul was saying here, Paul wants them to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Do they promote innocence and goodness? Or are they being suggestive and saying there's other ways around this? For a church who wishes to be obedient to the Lord, they cannot afford to be naive. Trusting in God, in Christ, but not trusting every man, woman who walks in the door. Be discerning. Keep on learning how to do good and to love God and obey him and refusing to have anything to do with evil, anything that's not in accord with the gospel. And there's to be no complacency here, no compromise. Remember in Galatians when they're starting to wander off this false teaching that says, no, you've got Christ, but actually you've got to do this yourself to get to the... Paul says, if you do that, you're cutting yourself off from Christ. There's pretty strong words with Peter at one point because of that very thing. He doesn't say, oh, let's just see how this plays out. 
it'll be okay. No, he's firm straight down the line from the outset. The minute he gets a whiff of anything but Christ and the cross of Christ, particularly with regards to righteousness, but not just that. There's other things here too. There's other passages that warn us, lovers of self, lovers of money, all these other instead of lovers of God. One commentator suggests a threefold test here when it comes to discerning and distinguishing these new or false teachers that we're to be on the lookout for. Does what they teach, does it agree with scripture? Does it glorify the Lord Jesus? And does it promote goodness? It's a pretty helpful, simple sort of three-way, threefold test. Does it agree with scripture? Does it glorify the Lord Jesus? Does it promote goodness? Such an important few little verses in the midst of this, these greetings at the end of this letter. And Paul finishes that little section, those few verses, with what to me sounds a bit like a paradox to begin with, but is ultimately a great encouragement. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. I'm not sure many of us would associate peace and crushing someone under your feet together. I get squeamish just squashing a snail. Um, but this is Satan being crushed under the feet of who? The church. And actually it's exactly what's needed if we're to know the peace of God, the defeat of evil, isn't it? He needs to be crushed. And that verse is connected with what he's just been saying about the warning of false teachers. It's not just a little bit off, it's evil. It's Satan trying to come in and divide and deceive God's own people. That's what he's been doing from the beginning, hasn't he? Adam and Eve, it's exactly divide and conquer and deceive. Nothing's changed. Satan is a liar and a murderer from the beginning. He is constantly out to deceive as well as to divide and conquer. One of his weapons, Tim Keller states, is divisive, self-absorbed teaching. Satan gets his fingers in the church by being an attractive, flattering speaker and pulling people away from Christ. Which is why Paul urges his readers and us to be wise as to what is good, innocent as to what is evil, and to stay away to avoid those who are teaching anything contrary to the gospel. We're to be on the lookout. But we're also to take heart and be encouraged because Satan has been, is being, and will be defeated. The deceiver and the divider will soon be destroyed once and for all. And as I said, that defeat is necessary for the God of peace to bring peace on earth and in the heavenly places to his people in the new heaven and the new earth. And when it comes to the kingdom of God, it's only by delivering us out of that kingdom of darkness and disarming the ruler of that kingdom and defeating him once for all that his peace will reign without any opposition. And how does that victory come about? The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. This is the only time in scripture that we hear again the echo of Genesis 3.15 where remember God promised after handing out the judgment in the garden to the man, the woman, and then speaks to Satan, the serpent, and says there'll be an offspring, there'll be one of the woman who comes and he will crush your head, but you will strike his heel. Now that's singular there, we call it the proto-evangel, it's the, the first sign of the good news, the first word of good news of Christ. 
He's going to come and crush Satan, defeat evil, the one who's brought sin into the world through his deceit. So we know, as Tim Keller calls him, Jesus is the serpent crusher who fulfills that promise on the cross in his resurrection and he will put a final end to him and all evil on his return. But Christ is the head of the church. And here we have a wonderful expression of the unity we have with Christ. If he is our head and we are his body, we participate in that victory. We actually participate in the crushing of Satan. Yes, we rely on Christ for that. We don't do it in our own strength. No way. Sin, the world, the flesh, the devil, all far greater than we could ever defeat on our own. But Paul is telling us here, the God of peace, so God's the one doing the crushing, but he crushes Satan under your feet. In John's first letter, the Apostle John writes, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. You ever feel like you're an overcomer of the world? Often it feels the other way around, doesn't it? But if you've been born of God, you will overcome the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. That's where the strength is. That's where the victory is, our faith. And the object of our faith, the Christ himself. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And in our daily walk of faith, this sounds like a big thing, crushing Satan, defeating evil. But it's actually something that happens every day. In our daily walk, resisting temptation, resisting the devil so that he will flee, taking the arrest of beds of grace when temptation confronts us. God provides a way of escape. Choosing the way of obedience and faith rather than disobedience and sin. Those seemingly small but significant actions of faith are daily victories over temptation, sin and the devil. Every time there's joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, there's loss and grief in the kingdom of darkness. A victory. Every action of love that we exercise, no matter how big or small, Jesus remembers even just a glass of water being given to somebody as though it was given to him. That's a defeat, that's a victory over evil, an eternal one. He wants to come and divide and destroy, so where we live in community and love, that's a victory. Where there's forgiveness, that's a victory. Where there's reconciliation. Tim Keller again sums this up well when he says, Satan suffers defeat each time someone puts their faith in Christ receives his righteousness and escapes hell. Each time a Christian obeys their father joyfully and each time God's people worship together in faith and unity. And what is it we need more than anything else in our daily walk in those seemingly small but quite significant troubles, trials and temptations? What is it we need to be able to win those daily victories in Christ? The end of verse 20, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. It's all of God. It's all his gift. All the forgiveness and mercy of God 
in the gift of his son to us. We cannot and must not attempt to conquer sin and the devil on our own. Far bigger than we are. We won't be able to do it. And when we give in, when we get sucked in, when we are deceived, we fall into temptation and there's a cycle of sin and guilt and repentance and reoffending and all awful cycle, it's the grace of God that kicks us off that treadmill and sets us in a new path with a new heart. So it's a great encouragement that as the church, the God of peace, God, again, he's the crusher, but he'll crush Satan under our feet. And before he closes the letter with a great doxology, there's just a few more greetings. Uh, This time with greetings from those who are with Paul in Corinth to those he is writing to. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. He's often with Paul, isn't he? Good companion until Paul says, right, Timothy, Ephesus, there you go. Appoint some elders there and uh, continue the work there. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Tertius is scribing for Paul. Paul's writing the letter, but Tertius is the amenuensis, the, the one who is writing it down. Gaius is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. So Paul's saying Gaius's house, but maybe Gaius's house is also the place for a home church there in Corinth. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cortus greet you. Again, we've got a fair bit of diversity there with names and roles, but you've even got the city treasurer um, involved in the church in Erastus's house or with Paul. Pretty significant, isn't it? To have someone on the local council, the local government, involved in the church and vice versa. Like there's the aroma of Christ in civil matters. So important. And we need to pray for those in our churches who are in those roles. With the Bible College and connection there, we're praying at the moment for, uh, for more workers to be sent into the field. Jesus says the harvest is plentiful. Pray for workers. Uh, there are so many churches without pastors today. In Baptist circles, my own circles, we had a meeting a few weeks ago after uh, COVID, uh, looking at you know how, does, how has COVID affected us and what's ahead. And some of the stats I heard, did I share this with you last week? 18, uh, 18 ministers over the last two years, and I think this was South Australia, Northern Territory only, in the last two years, 18 pastors have left their position in churches and of that 18, only one has gone back into another church. Now, others have gone into um, the Baptist office or into missionary work, other ministry, or they've retired. But that means there's 17 pastoral roles that haven't been filled. That's a big number of churches or pastoral roles not being filled. So we need more pastoral workers, don't we? Gospel workers, vocational God. But we also need godly, faithful men and women in the world, in the secular place, to be sharing the gospel and giving reason for the hope that they have in Christ. And here's one right in the middle of the city, the city treasurer, no small task. To be faithful as a city treasurer, a lot of temptation there, wouldn't there? Wouldn't there be? But to actually be able to share something of Christ and the witness of Christ and just to serve Christ as he serves his place, his hometown. Not in Rome, but in Corinth. Greet to you. 
uh, we need to pray for one another just in our daily lives and work. And then in true Pauline fashion, just as he opened this letter, he's a servant of Christ Jesus set apart for the gospel of God. Paul finishes not with greetings but by giving glory to God. We could shorten this doxology simply to say to God be the glory forever through Jesus Christ. But you know Paul, he often puts in a few more descriptors. He never goes the shortcut, Um, not often anyway. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul gives glory to God here, reminding us that the gospel of God, what he calls his gospel, my gospel, is able to strengthen or establish us supporting us, confirming us in Christ in the world. And I pick up from Tim Keller again. He says, Paul doesn't say here that the gospel of God is able to save you. It is. He said that in chapter 1, didn't he? Power of God for salvation for all who believe. But it's actually the gospel of God that also strengthens you or establishes you. That is, the gospel is not only the entry point into the Christian life, It's also the only way we continue and to grow in and enjoy the Christian life. We don't get in by the gospel and then have to work something else out to grow and mature in our life in Christ. We are strengthened by that same gospel, by the same God of that gospel, which is exactly what Paul's been doing for the last 16 chapters, hasn't he? I know one pastor in a church who had some visitors come and they kept coming for a few weeks and then turned to a couple of months and they spoke to him and said, well, we're really enjoying it here, but the preaching, you just seem to be preaching the same thing about Jesus and the cross and the grace of God. When are we going to move on and get on to something different, something relevant for life? True words. And they left the church because all they kept hearing was the gospel. Paul's telling us here, the gospel's not only the way we're brought into Christ, it's the way we continue in Christ and grow in Christ. It strengthens us and grows us for obedience. To, back in the beginning, Paul's an apostle sent to bring about the obedience of faith and here he finishes. You could actually, it's the bookends of the, of the letter, isn't it? You could, uh, we've talked about the righteousness of God, we could also talk about the obedience of faith being a strong theme through Romans. How does this obedience of faith come about? By sheer effort and determination on our part? No. According to my gospel, according to the gospel, verse 25, according to the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, Jew first, then Gentile, but all coming together to be one grafted into one new olive tree, as we read in chapter 11, through the prophetic writings, the Old Testament scriptures, And now to all the nations, according to the command of the eternal God through the apostles and disciples who have been sent out into the world, and for us now the New Testament scriptures, all this word ministry taking place one way or another, the word of God and the preaching of Christ, whether that's Christ himself preaching to us by the Spirit or our preaching of him, which in one sense I think hopefully is the same thing as Christ preaches through us, 
is vital to the life and strength of the church. That's why he finishes with this warning. Anything that's contrary to that gospel, stay away from it. It's dangerous. You won't be strengthened. You'll actually become less mature, less discerning and maybe even pushed away from Christ, cut off. The gospel is how God changes people and changes their future, transforms them, transforms them by the renewing of their mind, back in chapter 12. And it's to the God of that gospel, to the God who is able, who is powerful, the word there is dunamai, dynamic. God is not just sitting there watching while we sort of busy ourselves here on earth. God is able, to him who is able to strengthen us, establish us. He's revealed himself and his love and his grace and his eternal mystery of salvation. And it's God who brings about the obedience of faith in sinners like you and me. To him, the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. And all the people said, Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Father God, we do give you glory and praise. We thank you that you have spoken to us through your Son, through your prophets and the apostles in your word, and by your Spirit you speak your tender mercies into our heart. And as we've been reading and hearing and learning these past weeks, you've been renewing our hearts and minds. You've been doing that so much of our lives. And so, Father, we thank you that it's all by your power and your strength that we go on in faith and hope and love, in the obedience of faith. As we've heard today, we pray you would protect us and grant to us the discernment we need to watch out for those who would deceive us with anything contrary to the truth of Christ and your righteousness revealed in him and the gospel. And Father, pray that you would keep in our hearts and therefore on our lips this great word of your grace, your mercy and your love to us all, that we would be more than ready to give reason for the hope that we have in Christ, all for your glory, that others may come into your kingdom and be freed from the dominion of darkness. Father, we long for that in our own day. We don't see much of it in our land. We do pray that you would give us a glimpse of that plentiful harvest that's ready and that you would raise up more workers for the field as well. But we thank you too, Father, just for your great but sometimes small blessings and mercies each day that just keep us going in faith and life and encouraging us along the way. But most of all, we thank you for the great gift of your Son, the righteousness revealed in him, the righteousness you've credited to us in him through faith, and the righteousness you've given us to walk in by your Spirit, day by day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.